Hi, welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Clara Horner, and I'm a fourth-year student here at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. Today, we'll be talking about non-accidental trauma in pediatrics, which we'll be referring to as NAT. To help with our discussion today, I'm joined by Dr. Chaitanya Sembanki, a pediatric resident here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Chaitanya. Thanks, Clara. I'm really looking forward to this very important discussion today. We're very fortunate to also have Dr. Kevin Allen here, who is a pediatric emergency medicine physician. He has a special interest in child abuse and serves as the medical director of the child protection team at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Allen. Thanks for having me here today. As you guys mentioned earlier, we will be focusing on non-accidental trauma or NAT. Clara, can you help explain to the listeners what we mean by NAT? Sure. It's any act or failure to act resulting in imminent risk of serious harm, death, or physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse, or exploitation of a child by a parent or caretaker who's responsible for that child's welfare. Great job, Claire. While NAT will be the primary focus of our discussion today, it's worth mentioning that child abuse also includes emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and neglect. That's right. Neglect can be characterized by physical signs such as poor hygiene, unbathed or malnourished children. Can't forget that there are educational, medical, and developmental sources of neglect as well. Inadequate supervision is also a form of neglect. And neglect is the most common form of child abuse. It accounted for about 75% of child abuse cases in 2015. That's a pretty significant percentage. The statistics unfortunately get worse. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, in 2018, there were 7.8 million children evaluated nationally for child abuse. Of that number, 678,000 of these children were found to be victims of abuse, and a little over 1,700 of the cases unfortunately are associated with fatalities. The sad reality is that the younger the child is, the more likely it is for the abuse to result in death. About 80% of deaths attributed to child abuse are in children under the age of four years. As a pediatric resident, I have cared for quite a few of these heartbreaking cases. Here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia, almost 2,500 children were subject of maltreatment reports in just Richmond County in 2020. That doesn't even include the number of cases in surrounding counties. Child abuse has no barriers. It occurs in all socioeconomic classes and all racial groups. There are subtle signs that we will go more into detail later that help identify and hopefully prevent child abuse. Yes, these are known as sentinel injuries, which are minor injuries that can be precursors to ongoing or escalating abuse. From the primary care provider to emergency medicine physicians, everyone has a role in helping catch, treat, and prevent non-accidental trauma. Let's dive into how we can do this in detail. Clara, could you start us off with the clinical case? Sure. We have a three-month-old female infant who presents to the emergency department with her mother due to hours of inconsolable crying and vomiting. Mom reports that while she was at work during the day, her boyfriend was caring for the infant. He told her that the infant was fine during the day, but started throwing up. Great classic case. The mother's boyfriend taking care of the infant while she is at work. Tanya, should we go ahead and assume this is abuse? I wouldn't necessarily say that. I've definitely learned from you in the emergency room that we always need more history to help guide our evaluation. I really want to know more about the vomiting. Is this a new symptom? Does the child have any other medical conditions such as reflux or a milk protein allergy that makes her more prone to vomit? Clara, tell me more. This child was born a few weeks early but did not require an extended nursery course. She is fed a standard formula and spits up occasionally, but the vomiting she's having now is more than usual according to mom. Mom does admit that the baby's behind on her two-month vaccinations because of mom's work schedule, but otherwise she's been growing well with no major illnesses. Okay, Chaitanya, what's your differential diagnosis so far? Given the chief complaint, I'm first thinking very broadly. We need to rule out infectious causes such as gastroenteritis, otitis media, urinary tract infection. 
An anatomical abnormality like pyloric stenosis, for example, should be considered as well, especially if it is non-bilious and described as projectile vomiting. Although pyloric stenosis is more common from age two to eight weeks, it could potentially occur up to six months old. We know that the vomiting is not baseline and just started today. So Clara, has she had any other symptoms such as fever, rash, shortness of breath, diarrhea? How was the patient acting prior to vomiting? Was the patient ill when mom left in the morning? Anyone else sick at home? These are important questions to know too. So our patient has no fever, no upper respiratory type symptoms, and no diarrhea. Mom reports no sick contacts, and the child was looking fine to her this morning. Okay, so let's say the standard medical causes of vomiting infant has been ruled out. Let's shift and talk about red flags in the history that would make us concerned that this could be a potential case of child abuse. Chaitanya, what is one of the most important things to determine initially about the history of this presentation? I'd want to get a more definitive timeline to determine if there was a delay in seeking care. Does the story match the patient's clinical presentation? Are there discrepancies in caregiver's version of events? Does the patient's presentation look different than you would expect, given the caregiver's version of the history? Awesome job. Claire, you mentioned that the boyfriend was watching the baby because mom was working. I'm really interested in learning more about the child's social situation. Yes. So when we're talking with her, mom tearfully shares that this is her first baby and she has no close family nearby. She recently graduated high school and moved to the area to be closer to work. Her boyfriend who's watching the baby is a new boyfriend. They only started dating about a month ago. There's so many classic red flags that you mentioned. Young maternal age with first child, financial stress, lack of support, and a non-biological male helping to take care of the baby. Great job, guys. Social factors such as unplanned, unwanted pregnancy, poverty, unemployment, low educational achievement, parental substance abuse, and domestic violence are risk factors for NAT. But don't get sidetracked with these things. As we mentioned earlier, NAT can occur across all socioeconomic classes and family styles. It is prevalent also in two-parent households. Okay, so this is all really important information that we can just get by talking with the caregiver or the patient, depending on their age. In particular, we want to pay careful attention to details of the history, how the history matches the patient's presentation, and social factors surrounding the case. Exactly. A good, thorough history can be our first clue that this child may have been subject to NAT. So now that we have identified the components of the history, let's move on to discuss the physical exam features that would raise our suspicion for a possible NAT. Chaitanya, how would you approach the physical exam? Of course, a detailed head-to-toe physical exam is important. Examine the child in a gown in order to observe every inch of the child's skin. Note any bruises or burns. Look for signs of limb deformities. Are there any signs of pain on palpation of various parts of the body? Check for signs of trauma in the hairline. Vomiting can definitely be a symptom of head trauma. Great point, Chaitanya. Brain and head injuries are the most common cause of traumatic death in children younger than two years of age. Abusive head trauma, formerly known as shaken baby syndrome, is head injury in children younger than five years old caused by violent shaking or blunt impact. Besides the vomiting that Chaitanya mentioned, are there any other symptoms that you would find for those that have suffered a head trauma? Great question. Subtle symptoms include irritability or inconsolable crying in an infant. More serious signs of head trauma include apnea, bradycardia, seizures, or decreased level of consciousness. On physical exam, check for scalp hematoma, any tenderness, depression, or crepitus on palpation of the skull. Don't forget the battle sign or raccoon eyes that may indicate a basilar skull fracture. Okay, so on our exam, we immediately note that our patient appears scared and is crying. The mom is having difficulty consoling her baby. There are no obvious signs of head trauma. Pupils are equally round and reactive to light. She's moving all limbs without any difficulties. You attempt to check the ears, but the child refuses. There are no signs of oral bleeding or mouth sores. Lungs are clear to auscultation, and the abdomen is soft to palpation. 
external genitalia appear normal. You do note that there are multiple small circular bruises along the baby's back. Chaitanya, what do you think about this presentation? There are a few things that jump out at me. At this age, it's common for kids to have fear of strangers. But if mom is having difficulty consoling the child, that is concerning for pain or poor child-parent relationship. Of course, as most listeners may be thinking, the bruises along the baby's back are concerning. That's right. Keep in mind that those who don't cruise rarely bruise. Research has shown that bruises are often the preceding injury to abusive head trauma. Any bruising in an infant four months or younger should be a red flag. But it's important to be careful. While bruising may suggest something pathologic, like posterior rib fractures, bruising could also be due to other causes. Great point. Clara, what other possible causes of bruising can you think of? We should definitely consider bleeding disorders, and with that, we could ask about a family history of hemophilia. Other differentials we could consider would include salicylate exposure, vasculitis, and hemangiomas. Don't forget about Mongolian spots. These can be mistaken for bruises as well. Mongolian spots are also known as dermal melanocytes and common in children of Asian and African-American descent. Good to know. We know that all kids play and fall and get cuts, scrapes, and bruises easily. So how can I distinguish this from possible physical abuse? I really like the 10-4 rule, which is a clinical application tool to help providers recognize potential abuse in young children with bruising. The 10-4 rule? Can you tell me more about that? The 10-4 rule was initially developed and validated by Dr. Mary Clyde Pierce, who is a national leader in the field of child abuse in pediatric emergency medicine. Dr. Pierce and her colleagues actually expanded it to 10-4 FACES P rule recently, which was published in JAMA Pediatrics in 2021. It is a useful acronym to help screen children under four years of age with bruising and helps to identify when a bruise is more likely to be caused by abuse rather than accidental injury. So, Chaitanya, what does the 10-4 stand for? The 10 stands for torso, ears, and neck in any child below the age of four years. And the 4 also represents any bruising on any infant less than four months of age. Great job. And then we add the faces P part which includes the frenulum, angle of the jaw, cheeks, eyelids, or subjunctiva. And the P represents the presence of pattern bruising. Remember that it's common to see bruises in walking children over shins, knees, and bony prominences. But bruising anywhere else on the body in a child or one that is not yet independently walking should raise red flags for possible physical abuse. Okay, that's a really helpful acronym. Dr. Allen, what other injuries do you worry about? So we always get worried about pattern injuries over the skin because these are very concerning for abuse. Certain objects leave specific patterns such as handprints from a slap, small circular burns from cigarettes or cigars, or small punctures from a belt buckle. Burns caused by abuse can also have a characteristic look with sharp lines of demarcation and they tend to be more severe than accidental burns. Shatanya, what is one of the most important things to do when an unusual physical finding is found? As we continue to emphasize, the history is so important. Does the reported mechanism make sense based on the actual injury you are seeing? Does the story continue to change or evolve? Those questions should clue you into whether you need to worry about NAT. That's right. For example, hot water immersion burns have characteristic patterns. If a child has been intentionally immersed in hot water, you will typically see burns with sharp lines of demarcation. These will be seen on the buttocks, genitals, feet, posterior legs, and possibly their hands and arms if the child is fighting the water. That's a great point, Dr. Allen. Intentional burns will have a clear line of demarcation, as with stocking or glove pattern burns. In contrast, though, accidental burns are usually shallower, more irregular, and less defined. Okay, so we've talked about bruises and burns, but what about fractures? Kids fall and break bones, and how can I distinguish a pathologic fracture from an accidental one? Great question. Certain fractures are particularly worrisome. First of all, any fracture in a non-ambulatory infant is a huge red flag. 
Also remember that the bones of children are more plastic, so a fracture takes much more force to occur than a typical adult. In ambulatory kids, red flags include multiple fractures, fractures in different stages of healing, and fractures of the mid-shaft of the humerus or femur. Rib fractures in particular are strongly associated with NAT. These are usually due to forceful squeezing of the chest. Also, metaphyseal lesions of long bones, vertebrae, or sternum are classic examples of fractures that indicate possible abuse. Clara, what should be on the differential diagnosis for fractures in a child besides NAT? I think of rickets, osteogenesis imperfecta, and birth trauma if your patient's an infant. Awesome job. So what's next if we find worrisome physical exam findings that raise suspicion for NAT? We touched on several conditions that might mimic NAT associated with worrisome physical findings, such as hemophilia and osteogenesis imperfecta. It's important to rule out these conditions before we diagnose NAT. Chaitanya, what labs would you like to order if you have a child present with a fracture that doesn't quite fit the explanation of the injury? I would start with a complete blood count to check the hemoglobin for anemia, which could indicate acute or chronic blood loss or a nutritional deficiency from neglect. Continuing to think along the hematology standpoint, looking for possible bleeding disorders would be indicated. This would include checking von Willebrand factor and Ristocetin factor, in addition to your normal coagulation workup. What about evaluating for metabolic or genetic disorders? You're on the right track, Clara. It's also important to check for metabolic or genetic causes of pathologic bone fractures. This would include checking phosphorus, alkaline phosphatase, vitamin D, and parathyroid hormone levels. It would also be worthwhile to look at a hepatic function panel, amylase lipase, and a urinalysis to see if abdominal trauma is something you need to further look into. If that workup looks worrisome, you can then consider getting a CT. Similarly, think about adding a factor 8 level, factor 9 level, and urine organic acids to your workup. Inborn errors of metabolism can cause devastating neurological impairment and can have findings such as subdural hemorrhage and retinal hemorrhage. This can be confused with non-accidental trauma. Okay, that's really helpful to know. Thanks, Chaitanya. So we've talked a lot about labs, but what about imaging? What role does imaging have in the workup of NAT? The skeletal survey is a standard screening tool for detecting clinically unsuspected fractures. Around 20 x-rays are obtained of various regions of the body, including the skull, the three regions of the spine, the abdomen, the pelvis, and each extremity. That's right, Chaitanya. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends this for any child less than two years of age with obvious or suspicious injuries and for any child with an intracranial injury. Skeletal surveys are also performed on siblings of abused children who are under the age of two or twins of abused children. If considering head imaging, think about an MRI over a head CT for better dating of injuries. An MRI of the brain can also find subtleties not found on CT, though practically speaking, an MRI may be difficult to obtain on a young child. Great job, everyone. Okay, let's get back to our case. Let's say our labs come back normal. The skeletal survey is also negative for fractures. However, because the child is so irritable and inconsolable, I get a CT of the head and it comes back with a subdural hematoma. Claire, what do you know about subdural hematoma as a sign of physical abuse? Well, subdural hematomas are a common finding in abusive head trauma. If a person shakes an infant, the acceleration-deceleration force causes the brain to move within the fixed space of the skull. Good job, Claire. So, Chaitanya, what would you want to do next? I definitely want to consult my ophthalmology colleagues to evaluate for retinal hemorrhages, which are common findings of abusive head trauma. It is important to remember that this is very time-sensitive. Getting a consult within the first 24 hours is crucial since superficial hemorrhages resolve quickly. That's exactly correct. Retinal hemorrhages can actually disappear within 8 to 12 hours. 
Also, it's important to remember that rib fractures might not show up on imaging until 7 to 14 days after the injury when there is callus formation. This is why these patients typically have a repeat skeletal survey two weeks after presentation. The fact that we don't see fractures today does not necessarily rule them out. Okay, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Dr. Allen. That's important to keep in mind. So now that we've established this child is likely a victim of non-accidental trauma, what do we do next? As physicians, we are all mandated reporters. Mandated reporters are those who must report suspected child abuse when they find reasonable cause to believe that it has occurred. Other than physicians, that also includes teachers, school administrators, counselors, and law enforcement. Anyone who has consistent access to children through employment or volunteer work is a mandated reporter. Correct. At our institution, our role is to notify the social worker so that they can get child protective services involved. This exact process may vary at different institutions, so it's important to learn the reporting process wherever you are practicing. Wherever you are practicing, our role as a mandated reporter only requires reasonable grounds for suspicion of abuse. The burden of proving whether or not abuse occurred falls on the investigating agency, not the physician. Specific reporting requirements and procedures vary by state, so it's very important to be familiar with requirements within your own state and at your own institution. Okay, so aside from properly reporting, what else are we required to do? It is so important to document all findings. Like we've already talked about, a thorough HPI and social history is extremely important. You want to give the caregiver time to tell you what happened in their own words, and then document everything they say very carefully. Use quotations in your documentation as much as possible. Your physical exam should be specific and include photos where appropriate. And like we said previously, be sure to perform a detailed physical exam. Okay, it's good to know that documentation is so vital in these cases. Let's go back to those sentinel injuries. Can you tell me a little bit more about them, Dr. Allen? Sure. About a third of abused infants have sentinel injuries. These are injuries caused by abuse but overlooked and considered minor by physicians. These can include bruises, intraoral injuries, and fractures. So a physician might see these injuries but not recognize them as abuse that requires reporting. Is it also possible that many physicians might not feel comfortable reporting if they're unsure whether abuse actually occurred? Exactly. That's a great point, Clara. However, like I said, the role of a mandated reporter requires only reasonable cause to believe abuse has occurred, not definitive proof. Once a physician makes their report, it is someone else's role to thoroughly investigate and determine whether or not abuse occurred. I'm sure it can also be really difficult to discuss possible abuse with parents and risk sounding accusatory. How do you handle talking to the family once you suspect abuse, Dr. Allen? Awesome question. I would try to keep the focus on the child and their well-being. Try to explain your concerns for the child without sounding accusatory. Be honest, direct, and professional with the family. As a physician, remember to remain focused on the medical exam. It's not our job to do investigation or prosecution. It is our role to remain objective in gathering history and documentation. Okay, so to summarize, ensuring that physicians understand their role as a mandated reporter and know what steps to take when they have suspicion of non-accidental trauma is really crucial. I think it would be helpful to understand what happens after the report is made. Can you talk us through how the investigation works? The first priority after a report is that the child is in a safe environment. When police or Child Protective Services believe a child may be a victim of abuse, the child is brought to the Child Advocacy Center, or CAC. CACs are nationally accredited organizations that offer a multidisciplinary approach to working with families when there are allegations of abuse, typically working closely with law enforcement. This is a safe, child-focused environment where the child may tell their story to a trained investigator who knows the appropriate way to question a child as to avoid re-traumatizing them. 
This is why it's important that as physicians, we remain objective in our history and documentation, and we file a report so that those who are properly trained in this environment can proceed with the investigation. What other resources do the CACs offer? The CAC also offers mental health services, medical exams, courtroom preparation, victim advocacy, case management. This is referred to as the multidisciplinary team response. The Child Advocacy Center coordinates case review with all team members. Law enforcement would present the case to the district attorney, which would lead to the suspect being charged or the case being refused. A family advocate will help the family attain any critical resources or support they may need as the case progresses. Child Protective Services will have the child removed from the home if the caretaker is the alleged abuser or leave the case open for services or close the case depending on the situation. It's very important that physicians know where their local CAC is located. Thank you. I think it's really helpful to have a basic idea of how the process works and where our role as healthcare providers fits into the entire process. I'm also curious, how has the current COVID-19 pandemic affected child abuse? During past hardships, we've seen trends that can likely be applied to the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that after past national disasters, hospital admission records show an increase in inflicted traumatic brain injuries. Unemployment rates during the Great Recession also corresponded with increased hospitalizations for abusive head trauma. We know that unemployment and financial insecurity in families is a risk factor for NAT. COVID seems to have exacerbated these risk factors. I completely agree, Clara. During this pandemic, we've seen increased unemployment rates causing substantial economic hardships on families. Families have spent more time at home together, and many kids have been home from school. Since children aren't leaving home, they aren't coming in contact with many of the traditional mandated reporters, such as teachers and school nurses. In the past, we have seen that non-accidental fractures diagnosed in hospitals rise during summer months, while official reports to Child Protective Services actually decreases. These are all great points. Being a child abuse physician working during the COVID-19 pandemic, I saw all of this play out in real time. During the initial few months of the pandemic, we actually had very low numbers of non-accidental trauma workups and sexual abuse cases in our ED. As the world began to open up and children returned to school, the number of reports significantly increased, and we have seen more and more children being evaluated for NAT as more mandated reporters are in contact with children again. So to recap, today we've learned that non-accidental trauma is unfortunately common, and it can present with very nonspecific signs and symptoms. All pediatricians are mandated reporters and need to have a low threshold of suspicion to catch NAT early. That said, what can we do to help prevent maltreatment? It's crucial for pediatricians to educate parents about expectations for developmental stages and help provide resources to enhance coping skills during these times. Developmental stages that might more commonly trigger abuse include colic, nighttime awakening, separation anxiety, exploratory behavior, negativism, poor appetite, or toilet training resistance. That's right, Titania. There are actually a lot of parental resources that include information on expecting these different areas of child development. One of the common ones is purple period of crying that helps to explain why children cry at that age and what to expect. Crying is the most common trigger for abusive head trauma. Pediatricians will see kids and families throughout these developmental stages. One of the best things you can do is help educate and prepare parents for what to expect from their child. I think we've stressed the important point today that there really is a role for all pediatric physicians in the prevention and detection of non-accidental trauma. While the ER does see a lot of child abuse, it is unfortunately after multiple sentinel injuries and when a child is very severely injured. But the primary care provider can utilize validated decision tools to recognize subtle signs and symptoms of abuse early to prevent more detrimental results. 
We've covered a lot today about a topic that many listeners might not be familiar with or might not feel comfortable with. Could you both recap what you think are some of the most important take-home points? Definitely, Clara. So first and foremost, be really thorough. Let all caregivers give an uninterrupted full explanation about what happened. When documenting the history, include all details given and use quotations when possible. Do a very thorough physical exam. You don't want to miss a bruise that could be the only sign to something more serious going on. Make sure you report anytime you have reasonable suspicion. Don't let fears of alienating family stop you. Be direct and professional and avoid sounding accusatory. Remember to not make assumptions about appearances. Child abuse crosses all socioeconomic levels. When talking with the family, be sure to direct focus onto the patient. You are your patient's advocate. Remember, the purpose of this is not to remove children from their households. It is to move children out of dangerous situations. Most parties try to do what they can to keep children with their families. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Clara. And an additional thanks to Dr. Lorna Bell, Dr. George Sue, and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Follow the link on our website for a free CME credit based on today's episode. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.